0: Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're releasing one of 50 MAMA interviews. The MAMA interviews are 50 conversations with 50 legends of the Victorian drama teaching game. Drama Victoria has been recording these 50 interviews over the last two years to celebrate their 50th Birthday. So please do sit back, relax, and enjoy a slightly longer than usual episode of The Aside as we bring you 50 legends in the Mama interviews. Please note the audio quality varies depending on where the interview was recorded.
1: Hello, um, I'm Ellie Erez, and I'm here with the wonderful and very talented Yoni Pryor uh, for our very first Mama interview. Um, So, here we are at the Victorian College of the Arts at the Drama Vic Conference and this is our very first one, Yoni, thank you so much for coming. My absolute pleasure, I'm (laughs) (laughs) honoured. So, 30 years experience Mm. as a drama educator. So we're going to go back on this uh, up, up and away on our retrospective journey, so to speak, and uh, we want to know about how, when and why you became a drama educator.
2: I think, as is the way of things, much of it was serendipity. Um, I wanted to be an actor, you know, when I was in my teens, as so many do, and didn't get into NIDA. And so almost by chance went to Rusden, which was, in the 70s and 80s, the most extraordinary centre for... And we were all training to be teachers, but of course we all got extraordinary training as artists as well, and our parents were happy because, you know, oh we've always got the teaching to fall back on, it was always the fallback back uh, option. And I think also in the 70s, you know, you, uh, we didn't really worry all that much about what, we just assumed that we'd walk out into a welcoming world and we'd do whatever. <laughs> no, we weren't so, we hadn't paid for our education we weren't quite, there wasn't the same conception of a career or a career path or a ladder or you just wanted to really go out and do what, you know, extend what you'd learned when you were studying so so for a decade I guess I worked exclusively as a practitioner, as an actor, a director, a writer um, I had several years there when I was living overseas, working as a translator. Though I did have to fund some of my experimental theatre um, with some uh, relief teaching, so that
1: was always a... The fallback option really worked. So and can we talk a little bit about some of those experiences because they're, they're quite extensive. You, you worked with Hanoch Levine, I did work yeah. with Hanoch
2: Levin in, in Israel. Israel. Yeah. yeah.
1: And can we, can we, before we get to the teaching part, yeah. can we talk a little <laughs> bit about some of those groundbreaking experiences
2: well I reckon there were sort of two groundbreaking experiences for me and lots of it was that you know your good old timing extraordinary timing so before I went overseas I had just by dint of a a little web of connections Um, I did quite a lot of work in the sort of dying days of the pram factory with you know some some people who really changed the face of Australian theatre who rebuilt Australian theatre or, you know, took it out of the sort of English repertory theatre model. And, um, you know, th- that was really a sort of privilege that I don't think I understood at the time because it just seemed to be the next step. You know, as you do, someone says, oh, you want to do this? Oh, yeah, why not? <laughs> um, and then I went to Israel to do an A. And why? W- why M- why mm, Israel? Because... Um, I had a very good friend who'd made Aliyah and who'd gone to live there. And when I visited, the first time I travelled overseas, I visited her and she took me to the theatre and I understood not a word, of course, of what was on, but (laughs) the theatres were absolutely chock-a-block, absolutely full and the theatre was pretty amazing. And uh, I don't know, I, there was just something about the place that I loved, and you know, Israel in the very early 80s was a, a place full of hope, you know, um, which I don't think is the case now. So, I don't know, you know, it was an adventure. I said, oh, all right, well, I'll <laughs> come back and do an MA, whatever, <laughs> in a language I don't speak. <laughs> um, but within a couple of months of, of um, beginning study there, Yes, Hanoch Levin, who is an extraordinary Israeli playwright, happened to need somebody who was blonde with a movement background, who didn't have to speak very much on stage, to play a princess. And so I found myself in repertory theatre because that's the way it works. And, you know, you do plays for a long time and generally actors are doing multiple plays at the same time. You can tour all over Israel. So... Um, Yeah, I ended up in repertory theatre for three years in Hebrew, which was sort of bizarre. (laughs) But um, I think the sort of experience you don't get in Australia because Australia no longer, you know, with the exception perhaps of back-to-back theatre, we don't have ongoing ensembles. We can't afford them. So, and I think it's no longer the case actually in Israel, but, um, you know, to. To exercise yourself as a performer by doing literally hundreds of performances of the same play, by doing multiple plays at the same mm. time, you, you just learn something about craft that I think you don't learn in any other sort of context when you 're leaping from project to project, and it was so interesting i think to come from an experimental mindset because i've worked almost exclusively in the fringe with odd excursions into television or you know the mtc but i worked almost exclusively in the fringe here and then to go into something that really was a job you know this is work this is this is work with all of the you know, the sort of dignity and the honour that you can attribute to that concept rather than something that, uh, you know, where everything is contingent and could all fall apart tomorrow. So, you know, I think that was... An amazing experience, really.
1: And yeah. you mentioned that there were a number of times that you you were working as a drama educator as well, whilst involved in those projects, the Pram Factory and, and yeah. the work with Hanok Levine. Can you talk about how that fed in, or or was it connected in some way, or or was it completely separate? What, what sort of drama teaching was going on while those other projects were happening? Um, before I went to Israel, it was all
2: relief teaching. So it mm-hmm. was all mm, make it up as you go along. <laughs> Absolutely. Impro. Absolutely. And sometimes <laughs> it was drama, and sometimes it was year 12 physics. Um, so how can we improv that? Well,
0: year
1: 12 <laughs> physics through drama. That's
2: right. Yep. That's right. And uh, I, no, I didn't teach when I was in Israel, except that I taught some English, for, um, which was my other teaching method. Um, and I did some community theatre. I did. They put me in the in the a company theatre sports team. <laughs> so improvising in a language in my second language was mm-hmm. significantly challenging, especially when they said things like, "Play a Moroccan cleaning woman," <laughs> and so you're trying to speak your second language in another accent, <laughs> as if it was someone else's second language. So anyway, they were very forgiving <laughs> of me. So, yeah, I barely did teaching at all, I think anything you could call teaching while I, was, um, while I was away. But as soon as I got back and was in need of a, was in need of a job, I rang Rusden. And uh, they gave me first some sessional work, and then I taught um, in TAFE mm-hmm. for a year with the beautiful jo Raphael who has taught me as much about grammar teaching as, I think, all my four years at Rusden. Um, and then went back, then got a job at, back at Rusden, um, half time for a number of years, so that allowed me to keep working, um, to keep practising as an artist. And um, then one day reality bit and everybody above me had disappeared <laughs> and retired and I found myself running the drama department. So that's, I think, '97 I took on that role.:
1: Yeah. And when did you first start at, at Rusden as a sessional teacher? I
2: started in uh,
1: '89. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so what are some of the changes that you've seen uh, occur within drama education over the, the last number of years, being involved in, in drama?
2: Um, you know, what often strikes me is how enduring things are rather mm. than how they've oh. changed. So forms have changed. And, you know, we were just discussing before how the, the, the modes in which we work and the technology now available to us has, has radically changed forms... But it feels to me like we've, we've, there's been a sort of pendulum swing. So the sort of concerns, if you like, the sort of modernist concerns, very much about narrative, character, um, that you know, 20th century drama was built on, was sort of pushed aside for a while by the postmodern. Or the post dramatic, but never really went away. Mm. (laughs) And I think there's been a sort of swing, a real swing back to that. And um, I've just been
1: doing some amazing work in in 21st century theatre technologies. You've been doing some uh, marriage with a, a, a school, is that right? In, in, is it the Netherlands? That's right, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that because I found that particularly interesting and that's certainly something that that you know has developed in the the new age as opposed yeah. to the early, you wouldn't yeah, be yeah. doing so, a project like that in the early '80s. That's right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, yes and no, because in a way it works on exactly the same form as um, live television, yeah, or um, or even you know just just working through. Telephony, So it's mm. basically visual telephony. Mm. Um, luckily, I'm a complete nong when it comes to technology. So I, I have an extraordinary team at Deakin. And I'm... I, I'm, uh, I have little enough shame that I'm, I'm prepared to ask really stupid questions, <laughs> and sometimes stupid questions lead you to unexpected, you know, if I do, well, c- but couldn't we just, they'll either say no, if, no, the technology won't let you do that, or they'll go no,
1: oh, actually, <laughs> maybe. So, so can that, you talk a little bit about the project, yeah. Obviously the, the viewers might not know the history and sure. how it started, how it developed, and, and the kernel for the idea. Sure. Yeah. So
2: um, I have a very good friend who's also an academic in Holland. Uh, she teaches in English, English Literature, and we just... When I was visiting there, when I was on long service leave, we were saying, you know, what could we do? And we were we just, in a way, come across Skype. We just realised that we could, you know, talk to each other using Skype. And then we said, well, I wonder what, what would we do if our students could do that? Um, and of course her students were language students, they weren't drama students, but um, she'd begun some work actually with a university in Venice getting students to make presentations around art because these students have extraordinary English, they, you know, they write better than our students, frankly. <laughs> um, but they, they needed a much richer vocabulary to be able to deal with more complex things like how do you discuss art in a language that's not your own. So they'd been doing that with sort of art museums in Venice. And we said, OK, so what would happen if we did this with drama? And we began uh, the first project, which was 2009, was called Unsettled Dust, and we were looking at the sort of um, how colonialism had shaped our two cultures, Mm. both Holland and Australia, and the Dutch students were not in it, but they acted as sort of dramaturgs, so we were then just using Skype, which is highly unreliable. So we would do public rehearsals for the Dutch students, and they would feedback, and they would do dramaturgical research, and post it online, and they would write scripts together, and then we were just the performers, and then they they came to opening night via Skype, um, which was a great idea. But the technology was so frustrating because <laughs> you know it just the call would degrade and it would start to break down. It was unreliable. So then we began looking at video conferencing, which was much more reliable. So between 2009 and 2013, I think was the last piece we made. We've made six projects and they've become increasingly uh, participative for the Dutch students. So we moved quite rapidly to a situation where the Dutch students were actors in the piece and there was a live audience in Australia and a live audience in Holland. And so if you were sitting in Holland, you'd have the Dutch actors live in front of you and the Australian actors on the screen with them. So, you know, great challenge for thinking about how do we how do we make it really clear that this is live? They're not playing to some sort of video playback. It's completely interactive and, you know, do we want their audience to see our audience and how can we make the two sites mean something dramatically? And how do we deal with technological issues like uh, very particularly the sound lag? So, you know, if you're trying to build... uh, Dramatic tension. Dramatic tension (laughs) and you've got this lag before the voice arrives. Do we work with it or against it? Do we, you know, do we jump on the end of the line? So you know, I think the students, apart from really exercising their imaginations, they, it, it was just a really interesting way of them learning uh, artisan skills about how we shape a dramatic process around the, the limitations mm. That we work within you know if we 're working in an empty space, how do we make that mean if we 're working with objects that are not the literal, you know, that are not literal they 're metaphorical, then how do we work with that? Mm. If we have twenty five people in the group, but we want to do um, who 's afraid of Virginia Wolf? What sort of piece is going to come, come out of that particular combination so yeah that 's been a, a, an exciting process. And we're about to move into a stage where, because we have a motion capture studio at Deakin, where we will also start looking at sort of working with 3D images. So, yeah, they're the sort of luxuries you have when you work in a university that has limited resources, very limited resources in some ways, but amazing. Ingenuity. Amazing, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, it's great to see the students begin to take that into their own devised work, the work they make themselves, so, um, you know, so mm, virtual sonography, you know, mm, projections, live feed, footage, um, pre-recorded and, all, you know, live sound, looping, all of those sorts of things are now becoming standard operating yeah. procedure. It's and very
1: exciting. It
2: is, yeah, yeah, it is a really exciting time, I think, to be yeah. making performance. You know you're sort of balancing between multiple worlds but fantastic huge questions like what does live mean yeah yeah and what is what does a live audience mean if they're not actually in the room with you so I think this I think there's sort of extraordinary potential for things like live stream performance which which you know artists are starting to do and the sort of audiences that that Can opens open up, up
1: absolutely means
2: that you know we did a project. one of the projects in the middle there was with the um, British Museum so, uh, and the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge. So they gave us a brief, and they said, um, "We want you to make a piece about the, this bark shield, which was the first object stolen, the first indigenous object stolen um, by Cook and Banks when they landed at wow. Botany Bay. So their first encounter with indigenous. Uh, Australians, uh, apparently the, the, the people they encountered uh, took off when they fired some guns and they left a bark shield, which, they, which Cook and Banks immediately pocketed. It's been sitting in the British Museum ever since. As you can imagine, very loaded object <laughs> symbolically. Mm. And they said, make a piece about this. So my students made a piece where they created a sort of virtual museum And we had, for that, we had audiences in Holland, in London, and in Cambridge. So this is what you can do Mm. now. You know, you can have audiences everywhere just watching whatever it is you do. But you have to rethink what space means. Yeah. And what
1: a live audience means. What a
2: live audience means, everything is filtered through the lens of the camera. So this is what I mean by it. But in in a way, it's good old fashioned live broadcast, Mm. television broadcast technology building camera scripts, so it's quite complicated
1: <laughs> it's, it's the Don Lane show with the live video link Absolutely, yeah. absolutely yeah,
2: and with all the sort of yeah. inherent risks.
1: Okay, so we, we've talked about some of them I think already but the highs and lows of, of the career that, that is Johnny Pryor so let, let's, I mean there's so many that I'd, I'd love us to touch on uh, particularly from my perspective and, and my history and knowledge of your work yeah. um, the Gilgul days yeah, and, and they were pretty groundbreaking Yeah. Um, So, you know, maybe could we touch on some of that? Sure. Cool. Sure. Um,
2: Well, that was, you
1: know, that was again
2: a piece of extraordinary luck. Given that I came back from Israel with this second language, and uh, I'm not actually Jewish, Um, (laughs) but uh, you know, having been immersed in Israeli slash Jewish culture for. All those years and wondering what on earth you know you're going to do with this experience and barry kosky found me how uh he saw i did a piece in uh very early 90 when i got back uh with peter king in which uh it, which was set in a jewish care facility and in which peter just said you know what do some of it in hebrew if you can so i did so I, Barry saw that and um, I, I guess understood that, that he was a Hebrew speaker. Yeah. Um, and so when he was putting the Gilgal company together, he came and sought me out. So I didn't know him from a bar of soap, I didn't know any of the other glorious actors. And then I, you know, what followed was really, I think creatively, the five richest years mm. of my life. Um, and I think I've actually found it quite hard to go back to professional practice since because it's been very hard to match that intensity, that freedom, those extraordinary creative relationships, those long, cold <laughs> nights in that filthy space <laughs> in St Kilda. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, the sense that you could just make what you wanted to make Um, I think Barry often has a reputation of being sort of deliberately provocative or somehow willfully difficult. Um, And that was absolutely not my experience of him at all. And I I think all of the other Gilgal um, Mm. ensemble members would say the same thing. It was just a sort of joy in working with whatever came into the room and throwing out the rules Mm -hmm. or really examining the rules to see how far we could push them but um yeah they were they were sort of amazing incredibly busy years given that i was teaching at the same time and then running off to rehearsals at night but i also think that fed you know i was finding things in rehearsal that i could take back into my teaching practice Mm. Because you wrote versa. your Masters, is that I right, did, on, yeah. on
1: Levad? On, on making the solo work, yeah. yeah. Which was an incredible... Like, we talk about the highs and the lows. Yeah. So can we can we break that open a little bit?
2: Um, yeah, well, Levad was absolutely the most challenging performance I'd ever made. And, in fact, I've just finished my PhD, in, which in a way um, draws a thread through... That because the PhD was talking about how rehearsal processes, you know, I always think about how rehearsal processes shape the performance product. But I took a sort of further step back and said, well, how are rehearsal processes shaped by the context in which they are created, whether they're mm, conventional and established or experimental and serendipitous? Um, and so Lavard was the first time that we had taken the Gilgall work really out of the filthy spaces and into the an established theatre company, that's right, and worked within their organisational framework. And so we had to work faster than we would normally have worked, I think. Um, and as with the others, we built it in bits, but because of the shorter timeline, the bits didn't were not put together until quite late in the process. So it was quite late in the process that we, we realised what um, a marathon we made <laughs> for an actor. And um, I think also just this sense that we couldn't, you know, the other pieces we'd been able to um, just chuck things out wholesale and start again on a whole section. I remember in Ines which we threw out about 20 minutes of material between the last preview and opening night we said, no, we don't need that. <laughs> we just to put put this in there and then we'll just leap straight to straight to there. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was a really testing process, made even more testing by the fact that I became ill after the first week and then you suddenly think there's no understudy <laughs> there's no one else who can do this. The show has to stop till I get better and go back on stage because um, I remember ringing Louise, who was one of the Gilgal members, and saying, you know the show quite well, couldn't you? <laughs> couldn't you step in? Which she couldn't, of course. So, yeah, we had to take a whole week out of the season with everything that that involved in terms of darkening a theatre for a week. Yeah. All of the sort of investment... <coughs> And was then it I-
1: extended another week in lieu of
2: that week? No, no. that was not possible because of the programming yeah. of, yeah. of Malthouse. Yeah, so that was yeah that was a really that was a really Difficult hard one, time. and some of the stuff I wrote about in the MA though was how that story of my getting ill got quite mixed up with. Two other stories, one of which was the suffering of the character because the character I was portraying was someone who, you know, who, she was the sort of ghost of an actress from the Yiddish yeah. theatre who'd been through the, the Holocaust, Holocaust. been you know, serially displaced from one place t- um, to another and got, um, got lost and, and experienced extraordinary, extraordinary loss. So there was the story of my illness, there was the story of her suffering, and then there was the story of Barry Kosky, you know, a difficult, demanding <laughs> director. And, you know, so it was in, yeah, interesting to sort of start unpacking how those three stories got a bit muddled there towards the end <laughs> um, and how it affected the way people read the work. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a work I'm still very, very, very proud of. And I thi- oh, and the other thread was that um, because uh, beca- I'd lost fitness while I was away. Mm. So when I came back, it was I, I just wasn't physically as fit as I had been, and I, particularly my voice was not as good as it had been. And so I just learned something about acting in terms of having to work with what I had. So there was this sort of shift in the way I performed that character where I understood that I couldn't conceal the effort it was costing me either in my body or my voice and I just had to somehow reshape the performance to make those things mean. Mm. So that was yeah that was a sort of enormous lesson for me that I've tried to... hard hard to teach that lesson to um, very young performers uh, because often they don't want they don't want to deal with their restrictions they want to push forward they want to learn how to do something different. They want to test themselves against big challenges, and so teaching them to work um, in that very grey area between what is very particular about them, um, both the, the, the skills and the lack of skills that they bring to the project, uh, and how that creates meaning. That creates new meaning. You know, you don't have to do exactly what Benedict Cumberbatch did with Hamlet. Yeah. You know, you do your Hamlet. You do your, you know, I'm a 19-year-old woman from Berwick. That's, I mean, you can do that, that, Hamlet, and see where that takes you, because that's how you create new stuff, not by just repeating. So.
1: And it's not just about the creating of the work, it's about the analysing and the evaluating of the yeah. work, which you've clearly gone into great in-depth work yeah. on, and what's wonderful is that that feeds into your teaching practice. Yeah. That... that Your students are learning how to analyse and evaluate the work that they're creating with their students. Is that? Yeah, yeah? I think
2: that's right. Well, you know, it's um, it's a well-used term now, but you're trying to create reflective practitioners. Yeah. Um, Because I think at, at this time more than at any other time, whatever you might describe as the market, whatever that great strange amorphous thing is is um, is desperate for innovation mm. and so you 're aware that you 're trying to teach people fundam- a fundamental raft of skills that is going to allow that 's going to prepare them for something that is we don 't know about yet that we don 't know what it looks like
1: yet it 's also about justification isn 't it because so often you know, the teacher inside the classroom has to justify what they're doing, how they're doing, why they're doing, Mm. and so this is great skills that they're gaining in doing this to to get to that end goal, if that makes
2: sense. Yeah. But you know, the the, the difference, and I'm really seeing this now because I have a, you know, I have a teenage son who's about to hit VCE, and so I'm really relearning secondary teaching through his (laughs) eyes. (laughs) all of this is rediscovery and reiteration of mm. you know knowledge that you've absorbed so how do I frame that so that it's, po- it's possible to incorporate the unknown the thing that you may not have discovered and not see it as a wrong thing so how do I you know when when the magic of serendipity happens in the class how do I teach students to recognize that because a lot of the time if they've come out of a sort of conservative secondary education model, they've gone, Oh, I did that wrong. <laughs> I said, No, that was keep it in, it's the keep yeah. it in principle. That was fantastic. It was unexpected. But do you know what? It was so good. We'll reshape around you instead of you going, Oh no, I stepped out of the I stepped out of the template. Yeah, yeah. So well no, we're gonna stretch the template to absorb that thing. Absolutely. But it's uncertain territory, it's scary. Yeah. So how, you know, how do you give them the confidence?
1: I think drama does it best, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it teaches kids how to embrace chaos, yeah. and how to mold chaos. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now we did ask you to pack your suitcase. Oh yes. And, and oh, on our up, up and away uh, retrospective journey, and and uh, of course you're off to Ballarat, aren't you? I'm going to Bendigo. No, go, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> to
2: meet my son who's doing the Great Victorian bike
1: ride. So you didn't have an opportunity so to pack I a didn't. lot of things in your suitcase, but have brought a laptop. And and hopefully, it, could we turn it around? Can we see the laptop?
2: I think so. Now these are really random but there's sort of a story um attached to each of them so let's just say this is the i'm just this is the proud mother so my son reuben i married another um, very
1: handsome boy
2: i married another rusdenite another rusden alumnus That john is in um, film and tv so reuben is a rusden product and um, he's he's got a <laughs> the developing greatest production interest ever yeah <laughs> developing interest in um, drama his absolute passion is music but he has two phenomenal drama teachers at his school who I just saw in the foyer
1: awesome
2: yeah Emily and Emma and so they've drawn him in so he's um, about to do year eleven and twelve drama so that's our lad, our little Rusden boy. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so let's have a look at. Um, oh well, okay. So we were talking about. Um, we were talking about these projects that we did with Holland. Uh, I don't know whether that's visible, and I'm now seeing how very dirty my computer screen <laughs> is, which <just> is very <laughs> shaming.
1: <Covening cat> <laughs>
2: so this was a piece that we Can made in 2000. And eleven called. Do you accept? So you remember I was talking about yep. how do you make a drama when when the drama has to somehow in court make meaningful two spaces. And uh, so this was a piece we made based on reality TV, which was a uh, um, something that the Dutch invented. We have the Dutch to blame for Big Brother, <laughs> which started it all. So we did. We made this story that was um, that we did in our TV studio, and we did in one of the laboratories, in. At the University of Amsterdam, and the Dutch students played these sort of um, unscrupulous Dutch researchers who tricked people into coming into the studio and doing a series of increasingly cruel experiments. Oh,
1: wow. So because so they. It was very the, Stanley Milgram.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And apparently, there was a French TV production that replicated They that. did.
1: So they yeah. the experimenter. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So, so anyway, so this was the way we we did it. So they went through these increasingly cruel challenges where they had to be increasingly cruel to each other, with these Dutch um, uh, researchers making interventions all the all the way through. So anyway, that's just an image from that. Sounds that was awesome. It was great. It was really good, um, and. Um, now This is. I should probably have brought the video clip rather than. But this is just. This is. Are a they
1: big leaves? Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is a piece, this is sort of Gilgal and sort of technology. So last year I directed um, The Journal of the Plague uh-huh. Year, which is written by or adapted from Daniel Defoe's um, novel by Tom Wright, who was yes. one of the Gilgal alumni. Again, an amazing theatrical imagination and perfect when you're working with students who might, this piece anyway, who might, um, who might have you know, extraordinary energy but not yet have really honed technical skills. So this was just this great rollicking um, piece where they had to swap roles every minute and have things rolling on and rolling off. And the final scene is the Great Fire of London, which yep. is in theory what burnt, this, burnt the plague out. So, um, And for some reason he wanted Adam and Eve in there as well. So we've got some Adams and Eves, that's the fig leaves. (laughs) So this is sort of Defoe's hallucination. And um, we had this fantastic animation of fire that everybody sort of got sucked back into Mm. at the end. After this sort, it was, we had him hallucinating somebody, singing um, the the Live Aid song, Do They Know It's Christmas? (laughs) as he was hallucinating all these historical figures, and, uh, including Adam and Eve, so...
1: Sounds very theatre of cruelty.
2: Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> but great, when they learn that, um, uh, that's... Oh, uh, no, this one's more or less for you, Ellie. <laughs> oh, the Rusden wardrobe. Is that Trish? That's Trish. Oh, my God. So, Trish has <laughs> been there longer than me. She was um, there when we yeah. were both students. Yes. Um, and she is extraordinary. She
1: is extraordinary.
2: She has the capacity, talk about, you know, literally turn Sal's ear into a silk purse. So this is one of them. Um, she is one of the great living
1: treasures, She I think. really is. is she, yeah. yeah. Brilliant that she's that she's still we with We always us. had champagne uh, taste with beer budgets and she somehow always made, made that work. Absolutely. Yeah. So could,
2: inventive. Yeah. So inventive. And that's exactly the, you know, that's exactly the imagination you want in your um, students. So um, this, I think... OK, yeah. So one of the other things that we do that I love, it's not, it's not particularly my area of expertise, but I think... Uh, This is, uh, we now make a, we have a partnership with, um, which used to be with Fed Square, it's now with the Arts Centre, where we make a huge site-specific work for them every year. Beautiful. So we make this great event. So this was last year's, this was Stories from the River. So all of our students were in, again, various period costumes doing all sorts of activities, including pulling mysterious things out of the river. And it's... uh, It's a brilliant way of teaching them that, you know, there's there's performance that doesn't have to be in a theatre or on a screen, that engages with um, public in different ways or community in different ways that responds to sight and I think it just takes them to a set of other possible both creative and employment opportunities. Yeah. You know, that. You know, It's not a big leap from this to being an extraordinary party or wedding planner or event designer or something like that. It's all theatre, really. And that, in a way, comes out of... There was a period where... Oh, I just have to find it. Here we are. There was a period where we used to make a huge event in St Kilda every year. This is... Um, oh, this is going to look rubbish. <laughs> this is going to look really rubbish.
1: Looks good to me. Uh,
2: oh, there we are. Sacred so it's a sites. sort of a map, yeah. yeah. So we'd make a sort of weekend of work all around St Kilda, and that would be in theatre, because at that point we had a partnership with theatre Works. So it would be in the theatre, it would be in the church next to um, theatre Works, and it would be in all sorts of sites around... Um, I think one of my ex children's,
1: um, Elliot Singler, was yeah, in,
2: absolutely in, that. in this one. Yes, there was one I remember we did that was about um, St Kilda's um, role in uh, during the Second World War. So we were looking at um, you know the art of the time, but St Kilda. I mean that's sort of how St Kilda developed its reputation, as it was where all of the sailors, particularly, would come from Port Melbourne to St Kilda when they were on leave. Mm. So it's where it's reputation for prostitution and all of those sorts of things and one of the events we made was this big event on the beach which was about seeing a Japanese um, submarine in Port Phillip Bay that actually and happened. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we got the army involved and you know the students we did this sort of slow panic thing as they saw things and they built and then they built barricades and we had the army we had an <laughs> army truck coming in and it was then there was this weird ending which I don't know was whether it completely busted it up or whether it was just brilliant piece of brilliant serendipity that somebody came in just to the, towards the end on their What are they called? Motorbike? No, but the go on water. Oh, jet ski. Jet ski, see? (laughs) Early dementia, you can see, having word finding problems. (laughs) And just literally rode his jet ski into the picture where everybody was in the shadows, you know, looking out to sea or building their barricades. And one of my students just hopped on the back in period costume and took off across the water. (laughs) Awesome. So this was, um, I used to do these with Christine Sinclair. Who is also an extraordinary colleague and great inspiration to me and sorely missed.
1: She'll be coming She's up in another Mama interview. Brilliant. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, have I got anything more I need to show you? Well,
1: we've got so many more questions to ask you, but uh, apparently we've run out of time yeah. because you had to leave at 11 o'clock. Yes. We won't go through them now, but we will try and find a time to invite you back. Thank you so much for giving us some insight into your wonderful and amazing, extraordinary career. And uh, we look forward to our next mama interview with you at some future point.
2: Oh, I I look forward to the others. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Well, that's all from us at The Aside. There are 49 other Mama interviews for you to listen to, so please don't hesitate in doing that. A huge thanks to the large number of people who were involved in recording all the Mama interviews and having conversations with 50 Victorian drama teacher legends. If you would like to contact us to suggest an episode topic or to ask us a question, please contact us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thanks to Eltham College for letting us record here and Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. Happy 50th birthday, Drama Victoria.